listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah Alan Bro is an actor, comedian and broadcaster. He's just released his new book, Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches, Cockroaches out through Pan Mac. Very pleased he's joining us here in the studio. How are you going? Good, thank you. How are you all? Very well. well. Excellent. Thanks for having me here. It's delightful. Oh, it's a pleasure. Delightful to have you. It's nice and warm, can I just say, <laughs> which is an advantage anywhere at the moment. Well, we, we do what we can for our guests. This is, book is The Return of Charlie, last seen in your previous book, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies. Yes. Why don't you give us an idea who Charlie is and what happens to him? Uh, well, in, in Ch- the first book, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies, Charlie's 12 years old um, and Charlie... There's sort of two main characters. There's Charlie and there's his best friend Hills. And Charlie is an overthinker and um, worries about everything. In fact, stays awake worrying that he's staying awake worrying. <laughs> and that worry, and that then thinks that if worrying was a sport, he would finally be good at sport. <laughs> but he's not sure why he would be, why people need to be good at sport and why that's something he's worried about. Um, whereas Hills, his best friend, wants to join the army. And she, so she acts like she's already in the army. So she says affirmative instead of yes and negative instead of no. And she's very, very direct. She lives in a caravan on the front of her mother's lawn. That's the dream when you're 12 years old. Well, yeah, well, it, it, yeah, it is. And she, her mother bought the caravan because Hills built a flamethrower and burnt down three ha- um, rooms in the house. So her mother um, bought a caravan and said, go and live on the front lawn. Are these characters based on anyone in reality? Yeah, look, they they are. Um, Charlie, in some ways, Charlie is the actual me and Hills is the idealised me. Ah. Um, I've only realised that recently. Uh, it, it, it didn't come as a complete shock, but I, I've, you know, I went, oh, yeah, that, I'm, I'm quite like Charlie and would have preferred to have been a lot like Hills. Did you have to see a doctor to work that out? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, look, I've seen a lot of medical professionals in my life. Um, and, yeah, look, I've worked a lot of things out, but still, luckily for the medical professionals, there's still a lot of things that I need to work hard at. Um, and... Um, what were we talking about? Sorry, the, uh, the characters IRL. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they they are they are a, a lot like me. Hills is based on a, a a friend of mine who I've known since high school, who was in who served in the army. Yeah. Um, he asked me recently. He said, "Did uh, she says a lot of things that I say?" And I go, <laughs> yeah, "Yeah, she's based on you." <laughs> and he went, and his daughters. He's got two teenage daughters. They just thought that was hysterical because they'd both read the book and worked that out immediately <laughs> who it was like. Uh-huh. Um, so Charlie's the overthinker, and Hills Hills is much more direct. And they're they're a very good team. In the first book, Charlie wants to get a paper round because kids don't have paper rounds anymore, and he realises that in his neighbourhood the reason for that is because the paper rounds are, uh, of course, controlled by a cadre of evil grannies, <laughs> and he has to go to war against them. And they remain evil throughout. Like, it was very important to me to make sure that the grannies continued to be nasty, because oh, in a lot no. of kids' books, grannies appear to be nasty, and then they're just misunderstood or constipated mm. or some or have <laughs> lost their glasses. And um, But no, mine were just flat-out evil. And in this second one, Charlie and Hills are, are back again, and they get... Um, a new best friend. Yeah, they, yes, they've got a friend called Vivian, and uh, through Vivian they become the guardians 
of three uh, miraculous cockroaches. When you go to write a book like this, do you just think of all the most awesome, ridiculous things that you would have loved as a kid and then go, all right, now I've got to make that work in a story? There's a, there's a, bit of, there's a lot of wish fulfilment yeah. in it. What I, what I tend to do is um, the first book sort of came, all just came out in a big blop, and I went, oh, okay, because I'd never written a book before. So I had no idea what I was doing, which is sometimes a really good way of going about things. Yes. And um, the second book, I just went, right, I know what I'm doing now. I'm just going to go for it. And I sent the first draft to my editor who went, some of this is just genuinely ridiculous and unbelievable. And I went, hmm. When I looked back at it, I went, yes. I think it might. <laughs> it, it, because the thing is, it's got to have an inter- in, in, internal um, logic and reality. Yeah. But, yes, there's a lot of things. Um, there's weapons that Hills makes in both books that um, there's a thing called doom balloons, which is basically three balloons, one filled with soap suds. So if someone's coming at you, you throw the first one at their feet and they slip over. You throw the second one that's full of super glue <gasps> at them, and then the third one's full of um, live biting insects oh, that you throw onto them that stick onto them with the super glue oh, and are the- obviously upset. Yeah. And start biting, <laughs> and that sort of that sort of stuff is just. I just as a kid, I just would have loved, and I still yeah. love it, obviously. Um, so yes, there's a lot of wish fulfillment where I go. This is something I never saw in a book when I was young, and so I'm going to put it in my book. In the book, Charlie's a digital orphan yes. because his parents won't stop looking at their phones. Yeah. Is it harder these days? Do you think writing for kids when they have so many other entertainment? Options, you know, when you're, uh, do you feel like you're competing against whatever's on the iPad, whatever apps, whatever's or on fidget spinners, fidget spinners, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> non-digital things. My daughter came home and said, "I would like a fidget spinner," and I said to her, "I have no idea what you are talking about, <laughs> but I think it sounds euphemistic, and you're not having one." <laughs> I can't think of anything worse. When when you are of a certain age, you can go out and buy one of those by yourself. And then I saw what they were and I just went, wow, okay, I don't even understand that. Um, I think, I don't consciously think of that, but you do realise that you are. But it, it competing against everything. But it's really interesting because when I was younger, there were lots of classic books that kids could read, you know, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan and The Secret Garden and Enid Blyton Mm. and things like that. Um, But I can't remember there being a huge amount of contemporary literature. Mm. Now there's, you go into bookstores, well, for instance, readings uh, in Carlton and the Sun bookstore in Yarraville now have kids stores, Mm. um, you know, separate stores. So there's a lot out there. So I think kids are very engaged in reading you know, Harry, the Harry Potter books, um, the Treehouse books that Andy Griffiths and Terry Denton write. And so in a way, there's, there's a lot more to compete against, but reading amongst kids seems to be growing and growing and growing. So I think it's probably balancing it out. And, and a lot of them, I think they, parents buy e-books and the kids read them on their iPads. You're a man of many hats. In the bio for this book, you say you've been a director, a broadcaster, a composer, a musician and a singer. You also say you've been a dancer. Yeah. Tell us about your dancing career. My really? Da- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when we... My, my two main bits of dancing, 
Specs and Specs, the show that I did for years on the ABC. Never when heard it, of it. When no. it, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it, people liked it evenly, but <laughs> I, I watched it once and I found it just mysterious. <laughs> um, we did a finale tour and we went round the country and we played and, and one of the, the opening of the show was the three of us, Adam, Miff and myself, came out um, after having had an argument about how the beginning should go with very different versions of the beginning. Adam's was a sort of John Farnham-esque, Australian-style beginning. Miff was dressed as Beyonce. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why wouldn't yeah. you? And I um, was dressed as Fred Astaire and, t- and did a tap-dancing solo. <gasps> so this was proposed, and I went, yes, I totally will, but I don't know how to tap-dance. So they said, well, we'll f- if we can find you someone who reckons they can teach you in 10 weeks to do this, will you do it? And I went, yep, why not? Mm-hmm. So I went to this woman called Miss Caroline because she's a dance teacher and that's what all dance teachers are called, Miss something, <laughs> even if they are 900 years old <laughs> and have been married 57 times and are in a polygamous relationship, <laughs> they are still called Miss something. And I, I um, three 90-minute sessions a week for 10 weeks and I was... I, I, Tap danced in front of thousands of people over a two-month period. If this wasn't radio, we would totally get into <laughs> that. Yeah, well, if, I, if it wasn't radio, I would have totally brought my tap shoes as well. Um, my daughter did tap dancing with Miss Caroline, and one time my daughter was going to be the only person in class Some kids were away, so I took my tap shoes and I put them on. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to do the class with you, and she went, you can't tap dance. I went, yes, Have I can. And, I, did, and I, I pulled out some moves. I slipped over and smashed onto my side. And she just looked. And, and I thought, well, at least that'll be funny. She was just looking at me. She was like three and a half years old and just shaking her head. Like, oh, you total dick. What are you like? Um, and the other time is I did an eight-month tour of Chitty Chitty, the musical, the stage musical of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. And I played Baron Bomburst, who's the one who steals Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and I was required to dance eight shows a week for eight wow. months. Wow. Yeah. Oh. It was was good. It was, you know, I was half the man I am today doing that. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, I haven't done a lot, but what I've done has been of a low quality. I... <laughs> Oh, no, I just wanted to ask something about Spicks and Specs because you, you you were very smart on that show and I feel like it was a great platform for you to, um, you know, show off your knowledge and your music knowledge. Do you ever just go to music trivia nights and go, like, freak everyone out and kind of eye them off and then just get, get all your knowledge out again? Do you miss being able to be that person? Well, no, I don't go to music trivia nights because I didn't ever anyway. Because I just find the idea, I find the combination of alcohol and question answering you have to make so a choice, yeah. and I always make the wrong right, choice. Yeah. And so by the time the first sheet has to be filled out, I'm just trash-talking the other team sure. in a really slurry, unpleasant way. I like, relate. I can relate. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and the older you get, the less charming it is to be drunk in a public place. Yeah. Like, when you're 19, everyone goes, oh, what a character. When you're nearly 50, people just go, he's just a drunk old yeah. dude shouting. What's he even saying? Um, Why is he tap dancing? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, oh, he slipped over. Oh, well. Uh, I didn't know. I don't... I. I didn't know I'd remembered so much about music until they genuinely until the first program. Really? Yeah. So you weren't just chosen because you're the smart music guy. No, no, I, I this was luck. The, I, I'd had lots of discussions with the 
with the guy who ended up being the producer, we'd, we'd worked together before and we had lots of talks about music. And I think that he knew that I knew a, a, a reasonably wide range of music, which was the main aim. But, yeah, as soon as they started asking me things, I went, oh, yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I had a genuinely wasted, like, I didn't attend school as much as perhaps I was meant to. Oh. So I spent a lot of time listening to records and reading the NME. But it worked out. That's what you just taught kids. Yeah. Leave school, listen to music, <laughs> it all works out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, if it's one thing I can leave kids with from this discussion, it's it's school holidays, right? Just don't go back. Like, it doesn't matter how old you are, just don't go back. Don't. I mean, I wouldn't advise reading The Enemy. Like, that yeah, gives no. you a very, very skewed view of the world. And that's why we have an educational licence. <laughs> The, the book is called uh, Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches out yeah. through Pan Mac. We've been talking to the author, Alan Bro. Thanks so much for coming. Hey, that's all right. Thanks for having me. You're in Chippewa. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, we were on holidays last week, and I'll be honest, it wasn't all... Sweetness pies and lollipops. Oh, I love sweetness <laughs> pies and lollipops. You mean you weren't going to a candy factory? <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, there was a there's a couple of low lights, um, so we, I thought we might have a chat about that. Let's bring it down. Let's mm. bring the tone of the show down further. <laughs> yeah, right Lower. Down. Here we go into I, the dark. Now this starts off as sounding very exciting. Now I went snorkeling in. Um, in Vietnam at Cham Island. Did you end up going with Kath? Because I know there was, there was some a long contention. discussion about this, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, that's right. Because she wanted to go scuba diving, but I can't scuba dive because of my asthma. And so what was the conclusion? Well, we found a place. Um, also, we made a new best friend while we were in Vietnam um, who was uh, in the same group. We went to, a, we were there for a wedding and one of the other people there for the wedding. So he came with us, Lee. Um, but we found this place that does. Um, you're on the same boat, so same place. You can, oh. you so can choose to scuba dive or scuba- snorkel. Oh. It's a compromise. Very good compromise. However, she booked in to do the um, the diving and Lee and I were doing the snorkeling. But then Kath had a bit of a head cold and went, can't, can't do it. So oh. she had to come snorkeling as well, oh. which is fine. I loved it and it was amazing. That bit was amazing. The other, the downer was the sunscreen that we used um, was not good and I, Kath and I got so sunburnt on our backs, the likes of which I haven't experienced since a teenager been cool. Oh, I think I saw, you posted a photo of this, didn't you? I didn't post a photo of it. There's no, you posted a description, a not description. a photo. Yeah, I said it was the... <laughs> Jeff, what have you been looking at? He looks very confused. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just honoured that you thought my description was good enough for a photo. Um, but it was... <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm questioning everything. I'm sure I've seen a photo of you very sunburned on your... Maybe it was just another later photo. Maybe she just generally glows a little bit red. Yeah, possibly. Anyway, sorry. It was, it was the most annoying thing because I am so conscious of being sun smart. Where did you get the sunscreen from? Did you buy it in Vietnam or did no, you take no, it no. over? We bought it over. The problem was we read the label later, but Kath had bought it because it was the only sunscreen she could find that was under 100 mils. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she bought that and it was 
But then she later read the label that said it, the servings, it was like enough for three servings. <laughs> I know it didn't say servings, but there was, it's pretty much they so were saying. you have to put it on really thickly. Yeah, ah. you have to put on heaps and it, would, and it was just water resistant and not waterproof. Oh, mate, that is terrible. Did you wear rashies and stuff as well or did you have beer backs? Barebacks. Oh, mate. But there was no, we didn't have any rashies. Yeah, they, yeah. No they didn't shoots. have that. It was just kind of. Yeah. Did just, it affect the rest of your holiday? Oh, my, like, so much tummy time the next day. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, it was brutal. Like, I've never, it's, like, I felt like a teenager again and I felt so silly and annoyed and it was, like, it was, and I was, every day, Kath and I would, you know, aloe vera and moisturise each other's backs and I'd just think, oh, how would I do this without you? <laughs> like, how, it was just... Uh, so much like we'd you know go back to the hotel was like wet towels on our backs just trying to so so painful i tell you what was bad about my holiday Mm. on the first day i dropped my phone in the toilet mate (laughs) first day day one what do I want to do for seven days? I don't know. Contact people. That's right. Because you had it in your have a life back pocket. Didn't I had it in my back pocket, and it is the third time I've done it in my life. Do you know what I often do? Is like I'll remember to take it out of my pocket, and then I'll sit it on top of the um, the toilet roll dispenser, or sit it up somewhere. Yeah. And then I'll just leave it there. Uh-huh. Oh. Still, that's not I prefer losing it than the toilet because you have to put your hand in and then you, mm. then you try and save it. I ended up yeah. crying in the Telstra shop, crying. It was really bad. It was oh. a moment that you could have, yeah. Cause Did I'd, they save any of it? Oh, like? I'd paid for insurance for ages and they couldn't, like, it was one of those things where, but it doesn't include water damage and no one ever told me that when they were selling me the oh. insurance and I was like, oh, I cried. What's the point? What, what do you have? What's the point of insurance? Oh, if it's I was not so angry. It was just like, you, if you were there, Jez, you, there would be many tears as well. I and then you've got cried this. earlier and yeah. longer. Didn't yeah. You? So oh, anyway. did, did you do those things? You know, everyone says I you put, put it on rice. Yeah, yeah I did that. Well, you yeah. know, yeah. I think that rice really thing doesn't work. I think the you just. I turn think it Vanessa off told us once it doesn't work, doesn't all. Someone mm. told us. Yeah, once someone told us the rice thing's a con. But I tried it anyway because <laughs> you're just yeah. hoping. Desperate, you try a magic spell if you yes. thought that there was some chance it would work. This is very true. Well, the worst thing that um, happened to me was mostly just to do with being on transport on plane. planes for so long. Was, you got delayed on the right. way over. When we got, so it's a 20-something hour flight or whatever. You're in such a zombified state by the time you land, right? But then Heathrow's got this crazy security stuff now. So two and a half hours before you got from when you touch down to when you get through passport control. And it was just, it was just this mad queue. Like there were only three guys Three of them just – and I thought when wow. you get there that they were going to do something because, you know, they had all the terrorists. I thought they would actually do something to justify this long queue that they were going to, I don't know, put you through some special machine or look you up on some computer program. But it was just the usual thing. Give a cursory glance at the um, passport and then on, on your So way. there wasn't extra security measures. They were just, no, just understaffed. Under staff, yeah, under do you staff. do that thing when you get off and you're so – Tired, you've been on the plane for 22 hours and you're looking at the different queues to choose from and you're desperately trying to work out which one the shortest one is. I always do that and I jump from line mm. to line and then I get all angry <laughs> when one line starts moving faster than mine. That's and right, and everyone's in such a, such a bad mood. But on the way back, so on the second leg, um, it was already like 14 hours to Singapore or whatever and there's another eight hours or seven hours or something from Singapore to, to, to Melbourne. But I got on the plane then and I thought, because I'd got the... the I hadn't got the ticket that allowed you to specify what seat, you know, because it was Mm. bought by one of those aggregators. And then I I got one of the seats where you got, like, you're behind a bulkhead, so you've got extra leg room. And I thought, this is great. That's where the kids go. 
Yes, that was with the kids. And the first woman sat right next to me with a little infant. I thought, okay, well, you know. Oh but there's God. no one on the other side, so that's that's fine. And, like, she was really nice about it. I thought, oh, this poor woman's got to have this. The kid was already crying before we mm. got on the thing. So, and you can't really get angry or anything, you know, because it must well, be really Because you, you yeah. were a child once. I was a child mm. But then another woman sat down next to me also with a child. Mm. And then they got the bassinets out. And you could say, oh, I was wedged in between these two bassinets wow. with these... Poor bloody children, these poor bloody women. But Do you reckon that the baby, the the babies, what was like, but having the extra leg space was that worth it? Because I feel like I just always want to be at the, I always want to be at the front. With it was worth room. it at first before the bassinets got put on there because then I thought, okay, you can get up, and there was even room you were about to stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once the bassinets were even less room than there would be anywhere else, and you had, and the kid just kept kicking me the whole time. Oh, but um. What yeah. were you saying to it? No, I'm kidding. Um. <laughs> well, again, you can't you can't do any because you don't want to be that guy. Like, yeah. You know, no, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, a kid doesn't know what's going on. But, yeah, it really was just pounding with his legs <laughs> the, entire, the entire time. But you got moved, didn't you? Eventually the guy came and moved me, which, which was good because they were being really embarrassed about it as well because I, I, I kind of feel like if you're travelling with a kid on a plane, you're really conscious. Maybe the effects oh, is yeah. having on everyone else when it starts yeah. crying and... And, yeah. and stuff, and so yeah, eventually I got moved. Um, Some mad spot? Did you get upgraded? Well, I thought that. Did I you try for the upgrade? I thought when he came over and said, "Oh, look, you know, you look really cramped there. We've got another spot for you." And I thought he was going to say, "Come up to <laughs> Mr. Sparrow. We've got a special spot <laughs> oh. for you." But no, he just moved me down the back, oh. and I ruined someone else too because someone else had been. We were about three hours into the flight at this stage, oh. and then this woman would be there oh. thinking, oh, "I've got all this extra." You're the so, worst. So she's just giving me greasy looks. The, the adult-sized baby gets moved next to you. <laughs> exactly. Three triple R. I had um, dinner with some friends last night, um, and uh, we had a bit of a barbecue, a bit of a salad. Barbecue in the winter, a winter barbecue. Why not? Mm. It's fun. Was it outdoors? No, well, they cooked it out, outdoors. I stayed inside. Okay. Uh, except my, <laughs> there were actually um, uh, friends from America. Well, a couple. One's American, the other's Australian. Uh-huh. But our Australian friend, he goes, oh, I'm going to go out and I'll go out and do do the grilling. I'm like, mate, you are Australian. It is a barbecue. Uh-huh. Don't, don't you be grilling. You're not grilling. You're barbecuing. Oh, it's grilling. The, I didn't even know that was a term for barbecuing. There you go. Yeah. Oh. Go. Put, Put something on the grill. On the grill. Yeah, yeah, tuck something on the grill. Mm. Anyway, uh, but we had a bit of salad. One of the salads had olives in it. And um, our American friend, she has a theory that for a relationship to work well or to be perfect is one person in the relationship has to like olives and the other person doesn't, and that is a sweet combo. Because one person would eat the olives that weren't wanted, <laughs> so they never go to waste. Uh, I wish listeners could have heard <laughs> the conversation earlier. Me trying to explain <laughs> to Sarah Smith what I was going to talk about. What What do you mean? What What is the olives? What I, th- I thought, cause I thought <laughs> you were saying... I didn't know I how else I to thought, get across. Well, because you didn't say that what made it good was that one person would eat the olives and the other person no, wouldn't. No, I said, could have said, could have gone the other way around, couldn't it? You could think, yes. well, maybe if, if one likes and one doesn't it like. It caused tension because there'd constantly be olives in salads that weren't welcome. Or <laughs> Yeah, that's what you just said. Really should be over before. It'd be a disaster. One person's perfect relationship is another person's hell. <laughs> But if you, but olives are easy to pick out. So. They certainly are, but they do leave a residue on a pizza because I've got a friend who picks off olives and she can always taste the kind of olivey after. Yeah. They're strong. Do you like olives? Yeah, I do. I like them cooked 
and I like one or two not cooked, but not too many. Okay. I get, I get to a point where I go, that's enough. And yeah. ha- so you, you wouldn't have like a jar of olives in your fridge? Uh, we do because Andrew likes them a lot. There he you go. Them. Yeah. We, and what? also a friend. <laughs> a friend the theory is being <laughs> yeah. out. It's true. I, and I, the occasional one. A friend of mine got married recently and her little takeaway thing, bonbonieri, was uh, olives that her family had made in a little jar, like personalised olives. I would be and, very disappointed in that. Oh, you don't like olives? <laughs> no. Oh, and can I tell you how excited how much Andrew likes olives? At the end of the night, we were one of the last to leave. Of course we were. And the mum was like, we have so many jars of olives, take them, take them. So Andrew and I left in an Uber with him juggling about <laughs> like 15 jars of olives in his arms all the way home and our, and our fridge was just olives for a month or so, which he loved. But it's a good theory, yeah. I reckon. So it maybe maybe you've got one as well. You can text us on 04669810271027. What's, what's your recipe for a perfect relationship? Jeff? Do you like olives? I do like olives. Look, I think you've got to kind of... Let's take it beyond the olives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think you've got to complement each other but not not too different, if you yeah. know what I mean. Like if you just if you just totally... I think you also need to remember that one doesn't like olives if the other person doesn't like olives. I think you need to remember Keep that. Keep it front of mind. Yeah. yeah. So like Steph has a real sweet tooth, for instance. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't. Yes, what are you talking about? What? what you you don't have a sweet tooth? No. I've seen you. Well, you, went, you went across the road the other day and bought a bunch of cakes and I've never seen someone eat a cheesecake faster than you ate that cheesecake. Jeez. <laughs> I bought you, you said. <laughs> we need to get some yes, treats. but then you were like, ooh, cheesecake. <laughs> like, Jeffy, you are. What a dogger. <laughs> you are, Jeffy, you just say you don't have a sweet tooth. <laughs> I what lie. happens off air stays off air. <laughs> Last time I get you treats. It's a lie. <laughs> That's pretty nothing. No, no, tell us, tell us how no, you're not don't, a... Don't, yeah, anyway. Um, but no, so I think you've got to compliment each other but not, not in a way that's... Like, if you absolutely hate something that the other person likes, it's never going to work, yeah? But, yes. But yeah. if you can just sort of come at things from a slightly different angle, I think maybe that's yes. that's sort of like what your theory is getting at, yeah? But well, I think that a perfect relationship life. is if you go for the same football team. Oh. No, really? The yeah, same? the same. Because it just causes too much tension going for opposite football teams, particularly ones that are mortal enemies, like Collingwood and Richmond. Oh. Yeah, right. Constant problems. But if you go for the same one, you can... Go to games together. What if one person likes football and the other person doesn't? Yeah, well, that's hard as well. That's no, hard, that can work At fine. least if you both like football, you don't mind it being on in the house or, like, you know, going to the footy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's how I feel about it anyway. Or it's bad because you just, if you did go for the same team, you just talk constantly about it. That's all you talk about. Oh, there's another one. Might be a vibe, Pine- pineapple killer. on pizza. Although it might cause more fights than start relationships. If, uh, yeah, I guess so. Or maybe anchovies on pizza. Yeah. I know that's very, I love, very controversial. Do you like the anchovies? I do. I like that and I like olives. I like those kind of... I'm, I'm a pineapple I'm a pizza just, girl. Someone just tweeted, perfect relationship. Each, sorry, not tweeted, message us. Each person thinks they have 51% control. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> Amen to that. I didn't know anyone had control. It's no, all about who's got the upper hand. Or who's got the sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about <clears throat> perfect relationships. 
Yeah. And what makes someone? Do you need to move your microphone, Jess? It's, it's very <laughs> food. It's pretty food related. It is very food related. Uh, <laughs> like we got another text that came in and says, "Hi guys, I don't eat prawns, so they end up on a friend's plate. Another friend doesn't eat mushrooms, so they end up on my plate. Perfect friendship. So maybe you're in love with your friends. Oh, maybe oh. when friends become lovers, that's yeah. a whole other talk break. Mm. So. What, but do, uh, why is it all food related? I find that really weird. There's something innately about sharing meals that needs to work. Um, it doesn't, you know? I, think, I don't know. I always feel like food think, is kind of a metaphor I think maybe, for relationships. Yeah, maybe, maybe I just think about food a lot. Yeah. yeah. I think that's all it is. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Just thinking about food. Well, how's Eat it, together, you stay together. How is mm. food a metaphor for relationships, Jeff? I'm interested well, in that. Uh, no, you know, it's... <laughs> I don't even know. Don't ask me things like that. <laughs> Three triple. Ah. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. No way. Okay, fine. A memoir of pop culture, feminism, and feelings is a new book out through Hachette. Its author is Brodie Lancaster, who is joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, tell us how this book came about. It's a memoir, but it's made up of almost standalone pieces. Were they all written at the same time? Or Yeah, I pretty much wrote it all last year from like January to it was due in September, so like till like August, um, with like breaks for like feeling like I couldn't do it, you know, <laughs> like I can't do it. I'm not going to write anything for a while. Um, but it it kind of started because I had written a few things for the internet, and um, the a publisher at Hachette had kind of seen a few of them and approached me about writing a book. Um, but I was like 24 at the time, and I was like. Oh, don't think I can do that. So I just kind of kept writing um, stuff for the internet and doing like a little bit of music criticism and some film writing and some like feelings, like <laughs> memoir writing. Um, and then so the and I entered all of that kind of stuff in the Ritual Prize two years ago, which is like a prize for emerging writers, um, which I was shortlisted for but didn't win. And then that kind of uh, launched into the what the book is now, which is all new stuff, but kind of inspired by stuff I'd written before. In the second chapter, you write about showing your mother a passage from a novel as a way of telling her that you don't appreciate her attitude to your body. It kind of struck me as a as almost a moment that's symptomatic of the book itself, the way that certain cultural products can maybe express what we want to say sometimes mm. better than we can itself is that a fair yeah sense of that yeah I think totally the like all of the pop culture stuff in the book it it's all stuff that I genuinely like love and spend time with but it's also stuff that helps me kind of interpret my feelings and the world and without sounding cheesy it's like you know the lens through which you like (laughs) you know relate to yourself I guess and and you either find things that you like recognize yourself in or don't. And then that's also a big part of the book is all of the ways that like we don't see ourselves in popular culture. I, when I was reading this, there was many moments when I would like stab the page with my finger and be like, me too, that happened to me. <laughs> and I was struck by how relatable so many of the experiences were, but also how unwilling I would be to put myself out there and write those experiences mm-hmm. down. I felt really empowered reading you doing it. <laughs> but wh- how did you 
do you, do you feel terribly exposed now you've done this? Because it's one thing to sit in your room typing it, but then to have those experiences kind of put out for the world to pick apart. Yeah, totally. I was like, when it when it was coming out, I kind of all of a sudden was like, oh no, now people are going to read it. <laughs> um, because it really was like the safety of like my bedroom and my desk and my little house and, you know, my editors and publisher reading it. That felt like very safe and contained and, you know, I was getting feedback on like my feelings, but in like a kind of um, editorial way. Like it was like, oh, well, maybe this part would work better here. It wasn't like, well, this feeling is invalid, you know. Um, And right before it came out, I had like such a freak out about like people I went to school with and my family and like because nobody in my family or anyone had read it until it came out Um, except for like a few passages that I like cleared with people Um, so it was a real thing of like now you're gonna know all my feelings and what has your family's response been to it so far it's been pretty nice like I've not that it's bad to say I'm surprised because they're good people but it's like you know, my dad, I think, is still going through it. He's sending me texts every day of what page he's up to. Oh. And his first one was, page 19, you haven't lost me yet. And I was like, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> you got about 250 pages to go, but thanks. Um, and my mum was like, sent me a text saying she was very proud. And, like, my one of my sisters is almost finished with it, I think. It's just been, like, yeah, it's been really nice because as much as it's about myself, they're also, like, a big part of my life and so have been you know their their stories are also in the book and the whole time writing it I had to kind of I I would wake up in a like with a start in the middle of the night and like google like writing memoir family reactions and trying to find like (laughs) other people who have like dealt with the same anxiety talking about it I love that that became mine is usually sore back middle of the night like you know am I dying yeah so yeah that's excellent yeah it's a book about well about many things but about pop culture. You write about growing up in Bundaberg, which I did not realise is also the setting of that Kylie Minogue movie, yes. The Delinquents, yeah. in which one of the characters screams at one stage, I hate Bundaberg. I know, yeah. <laughs> but do you, do you think that pop culture becomes more important when someone is in a kind of isolated setting like that? I mean, your experience seems to be feeling quite mm. alienated from the town and sort of finding solace in in pop culture. Yeah, totally. I think so. And I think it's also like you know, it's not only, like, an escape, but it's also just kind of like, oh, (laughs) it's going to sound really sad, but, like, it keeps you company a little bit, you know? Like, you return to the the things that you love. And, like, my, my, when I think about my house in Bundaberg, I think of, like, my teenage bedroom and I had, like, a huge Ramones poster on the wall and a dashboard confessional poster. And, like, I was like, these are the people that I, like, want to, like, be like or places I want to go to. And um, so it was kind of just like a kind of, like, reassurance that, like, okay, this is not, like, the last place I'm ever going to be. I can, like, leave and go to these kind of other worlds. One of the key arguments in the book is a defence of pop culture against uh, what maybe you can call kind of rockist elitism. Could you maybe explain Uh that? Yeah, sure. Um, I wrote, uh, yeah, so there's a chapter where I talk about what I call the misogyny of taste, which I kind of see as the, we see it a lot on the internet, but we also see it in conversations in real life, like the idea that there are like bands or TV shows or movies or people that you should put value on or that are 
quote unquote good, like objectively good and quality and worth spending time with. And then there are other cultural products that are bad or trashy or low class or things that only dumb people like enjoy or consume. Um, And the more I thought about it, the more I realised that those latter things are all made by or about or for women or particularly young women or queer people. And so there's this idea of like, there's kind of like this hierarchy of like things that are good. And at the top, it's all kind of like very masculine, very white centric, very like bro-y for lack of a better term, you know. So I just wanted to like spend a bit more time thinking about that. Like I've written about it a little bit before, but the book really gave me like a bit more space to like go a little bit deeper. Yeah, because I was just reading that bit um, just before um, about, yeah, there's the list of TV shows that everyone says that you should watch. Yeah. Like The Wire and um, the the, the West Wing and, and yeah. Yeah, all of that. And then there's the other shows <clears throat> like a – and then all the shows that you listed, I was like, yes, I love that show. Yes, I love that show. Like America's Next Top Model. I yeah. can easily watch all, every yeah. single series of, yeah. of those and yes. stuff. And Think about got, that next time I say something about the Big Bang Theory. Oh, mate. You're well, that is never going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's something shifting for women. This year I've read um, a number of books by women who are talking really proudly about these kinds of things that you are as a young woman what do you think is happening right now to make this okay for you to stand up and have that voice yeah I think there's I think one part of it is that you're not the only that I'm not the only person saying these things and and so I know that I'm not going to get kind of like struck down for having these opinions but um I think it's also just kind of living on the internet is yeah. I think it makes everybody a little bit more conscious and aware. It makes also makes people like maybe in different ways more vulnerable to like critique or trolls or those two things are very different. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think the internet just makes us all a little bit more conscious and aware in a way that we maybe weren't before. But there's also the flip side of that is that it is a bit of a bubble of like safety and, you know, everyone agreeing with the same people because we all follow each other and as soon as you step outside of that and you see other people's opinions you're like oh wait is anything actually different yeah yeah Yeah. I love your love also of Kanye West because I spend my whole life defending him uh, because I love him what what was it what was kind of what do you love about Kanye um I'm wearing a (laughs) Kanye jumper right now I didn't even plan this um uh I love I think he's just like kind of like the essence of like what a human being is like he he talks about like how scared he is of doing things in his life but that he has to do them anyway because otherwise he's like like that's what like he has this quote that I love that's all about how bravery isn't like the absence of fear it's about running through the fire and knowing that you'll get out on the other side it's like having fear but like doing the thing anyway um I also just love his like he's obsessed with his own work he's but he's also obsessed with other people's work and so when he says stuff like I'm one of the greatest rappers of all time it's like I trust him because yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not just blind ego. It's like he knows everything about music. He's like an encyclopedia um, and he knows his place within it. I also think he's like a little bit psychic. Like he, because <laughs> the stuff he does. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. He's always ahead of the curve. He's always ahead. And so we criticise him now and then in five years we'll be like, 
Oh, he was right. Yeezy yeah. was right. Yeezy was right. Uh, you're having a launch of this book coming up on Sunday. Sunday. I believe what's happening there. Um, it's at the Gasso. It's from four till seven, a nice little afternoon. So then you can go and Perfect. watch Australian Ninja Warrior afterwards. <laughs> um, and it's going to have – it's. I wanted it to be like a fun little gig instead of just like a regular book launch. And so Japanese Wallpaper is DJing and my friend's choir crying on the Eastern Freeway is going to be singing, which I'm <laughs> so excited about. Um, and uh, then Sus Cunts are going to play. Yes. Yeah. yeah. My favourite band. The book is called No Way Okay Fine, a memoir of pop culture, feminism and feelings. It's out through Hachette. Its author is Brody Lancaster. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.